0: being different that was luther right luther was willing to be different and and i often see luther as this this uh, raging bull in the vineyard and that's the way one of the popes actually described him there's a bull loose in the vineyard or you imagine a bull in a china shop and doing all this damage but he's big and strong and powerful and yet in reality that wasn't the situation luther was in in fact if we read luther's theses today they they we wouldn't agree with, we would say, hey, you were, were soft peddling things a little bit. You were being careful about what, how you said what you said uh, because he did not have earthly power he was a lecturer at the university. He wasn't even yet Dr. Luther. You know how that's like in universities, right? You have the PhDs. Those are the really bright ones that know everything and can speak and say. And, and then, there's the, there's, then there's the grad students who are working on their doctorate degree. And they'll be the grad assistants and they'll be the teaching assistants. But they don't know the things the real profs know. That was in a, at this time Luther had his master's of his master of arts. He didn't yet have his his doctorate and his full qualifications. He's still young, and and yet he sees these things going on. It's not even happening yet in his town, but he sees it going on. He sees it coming. and he says, "But church, you see, because the other thing that's going on with Luther at the time is there has been a return, a resurgence in some places." It's actually, it actually was called the humanist movement, interestingly enough, because that's come to me something very different. But the humanist movement at that time was actually a return to the classic languages like Greek and Hebrew. You all have been studying your Greek and Hebrew, right? A return to the classical languages and with them a return to the Bible itself instead of studying commentaries about the Bible. That's what was happening in Luther's day in some circles, and he was caught up in that. And as he read his Bible, he said, but wait, what we're doing is not what God's word has said. And so that creates this tension, and he's willing, even though he is without political power, so to speak, he's willing to put his hand up or to hold his hammer up, nail it to the wall, send a copy to the archbishop so he would be properly informed, and things started from there. A scholarly debate on the university campus, but also sent off to the archbishop, who didn't know what he was going to do with this because it definitely impinged on his fundraising plans, and so he sends it off to the pope to figure out what to do next, and then things begin to unravel from there. But as you know, it changed Europe. It changed the church, and we are not Lutherans per se. No, Martin Luther didn't build this church with his hammer, but um, uh, we do stand on those shoulders. We're grateful for those who, in a time when the course of, of society and culture and world power was against them, they stood up and they said, yeah, but this is not right. This is not what God's Word has said. There's another uh, approach to seeing things that, are, that come in conflict between us and the things of the world. And that's to withdraw, is to separate. You see, a few hundred years before, before Martin Luther, what's called the monastic movement, retiring to monasteries. I, I say retiring, maybe you should say retreat. I don't mean when you get old you go to a monastery. I mean, when, when you retreat from the world and pull away to an isolated place where you will be safe and protected from the world's ungodly influences so you can pursue holiness, righteousness, closeness to God. This is a monastery. It's the Metora Monastery in Greece. If you, you can see by the picture, I'm going to turn those lights off. These ones? No. This one? That one. There we go. You can see a little bit better on the screen there. And you can see, if you look over to the right, this is quite high up. The, the, there's, the, there's these... There's these Pillars, columns of rock. And and they said, that'd be a good place to build a home. I mean, it's kind of like living in Amboy. It was way out from everything around, right? You, can, you, can, you could live up there, and if you pulled your ladder up, whenever you feel threatened, nobody else could get to you. No evil influences can approach. The only evil that could possibly get to you there... Is what's in your own heart. Whoops. The problem is also within us. That's the problem with the monastic movement and separating ourselves away from everything else. The 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 idea of separation in the Bible actually is not so much as separating from, and I could I could overstate that case, but certainly it's a matter of separating to. I love Paul's words, and I'm trying to prove that point by this, but I love Paul's words as Paul, an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God. That he saw himself separated to something. Now, there's, there's a Words in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, that we're going to read this morning, that talks about this separation. It talks about being unequally yoked. It talks about what we separate ourselves from. And what is that and how does that relate to this idea of true, genuine, authentic discipleship? I want to suggest to you this morning, and I hope we can we, we see it together from God's word, that authentic discipleship is not... So much a matter of distance, getting away from everything, like the monastery. But authentic discipleship is a matter of being different, not distant. I'll unpack that as we go. But could you open your Bibles to Second Corinthians chapter six? Second Corinthians chapter six. We're going to be in the second half of the of the um, passage. This morning, I learned last week as, as Pastor Ryan, and this is one of the things I love about, uh, I love about Pastor Ryan. He is very willing to go when the Spirit says go and stop when the Spirit says stop. And as he was, as he was preparing uh, for, for, for last Sunday, he's, we really needed to rest and focus and camp in that grace in the first half of chapter 6. Now, that had the side opportunity as well of leaving the second half of chapter 6 for Bob next week and some of the sticky questions involved in it. So thank you for that also, but, but I, I appreciate that. That willingness, will we, some, some, of the, some of what's here for us still in this chapter is will we yield ourselves to the Spirit or will we go the way we're going? So then, in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Beginning in verse 11, I'll read through to chapter 7, verse 1. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. So you can tell there's this, there's this background of distance. There's this background of separation already that Paul is addressing. And it's a matter of affections. Our heart is wide open to you, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as if to children, widen your hearts toward us. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Another name for Satan. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as it is written, I will make my dwelling among them, and I will walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. And then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Father, we thank you for ancient words. We thank you that more than they are ancient, they are living. That your word is alive and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And we would ask, Father, that it would do its work in our hearts. That we would be yielded to you. That our hearts would be open before you. That you might speak to us. That you would confront what needs to be confronted. Lord, that you would comfort what needs to be comforted. You'd remind us of who we are, who you have made us to be. And Father, you would direct our hearts, our affections after you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. He says, What's going on here? And the conflict that's arisen, the distance, the, the lack of fellowship that, that is between Paul and those, those in his circles and this church in Corinth is a matter of affections. It's not a matter of Paul's affections toward them, but it's a matter of their affections, not so much, I think, against Paul, but for other things. Their affections are what separate them from the things of Christ and the things of Paul. This don't be unequally yoked then comes up in the midst of that. The being yoked, maybe it is that we can be bound by those things that we love, those things that we long after, those things that we desire. It's something that John warns us against, isn't it? To direct our affections is to not be unequally yoked, to direct our affections. What way do we direct our affections? Well, John, in his first epistle, 1 John chapter 2, he warns us about that. What way do we direct our affections? 1 John chapter 2, you can put up on the screen. He says, do not love the world or the things of the world. Those things of the world, the, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life, these things are not of God, but they're of the world. But they're easily things that we love. But they they distract us and draw us. They entice us, like like a lure does to a fish. They draw us away from the things of God, and they end up ensnaring us, the way that James describes it. Paul puts it another way in, in, in Colossians chapter three and verse one. We can put that one up as well. Colossians three one. If you then have been raised with Christ. Seek those things which are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Here it is. Set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. And let those heavenly affections, those those Godward affections also steer and influence our earthly affections. That we love as we love on earth. And the things that we pursue and desire on earth are the things that matter in eternity. Are the things that we take with us. The things that are worth investing in because of the things that are last. and The, the, the things that will last. And, and when I think about that, I especially think of people who will endure, who will live forever. And so so the people around us, for instance, matter much more than the things around us, the things that can give us comfort, the things that we enjoy, the things that we collect, the things that we might trust in instead. I think that trust in is something that is going to linger here as we go a little farther. As it it goes into verse 14, he says, okay, okay, uh, don't be unequally yoked, don't be mishmashed. Don't be joined together. Now, the term is used in relation to um, having an oxen and a horse yoked together, that you have two different an- kinds of animals. It was actually used, the same word, in fact, was used uh, in the book of Leviticus in talking about not, putting, not mingling two different kinds of cattle together so that you would have the offspring of the two of them. I thought that was an interesting image I pressed a little bit further, I thought about two other kinds of animals, not necessarily the cattle of, 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 um, of, of, of the book of Leviticus, but not unlike a horse and a cow yoked together, the, the common thing to take a donkey and a horse and to mingle those together, to match those together, and out of that union you get something called a mule. And a mule was apparently a wonderful thing, a very useful animal, a good, good, good work animal. The only problem with it, it was, out of those two mismatched, you ended up with an animal that was sterile. Two mules cannot make another mule. The animal is sterile and cannot reproduce. So the only way is to mingle two other again, and then you get another mule. Two horses, a horse and a donkey, give you a mule, so forth. But but, but the point is, mingling one with another brings out something that is sterile and cannot give further life. And I think that's actually an apt illustration of what Paul is talking about here in the church. When we mingle spiritual things together with not merely unspiritual or material or things on earth, but the things that are of the earth, and especially those things that are contrary to God. And that's the contrast that he unpacks here. It's not just how do we live in the midst of the world, but what things in our midst are actually contrary to our spiritual life, and what will we do with them. Let me give some examples. Verse 14, Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? So righteousness, I'm pursuing God's ways within my life. Whereas lawlessness is, I do what I want. I set my own rules. I'm not accountable to God. Those those don't have any partnership together. They're not pulling in the same direction. What fellowship has light with darkness? What what fellowship does the truth have with a lie? What accord, what agreement, what harmony does Christ have with Satan? Satan. What is he hinting at there? I think the next two unpack a little further. What portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? Now, that idea of share, that's two servings out of the same pie plate, okay? Is here's mine is yours. Your portion, what you're going to get, is the same thing that I'm going to get. And yet believers and unbelievers share different destinies. And so they should be pursuing those different destinies in very different ways. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? And now he gets down to a very common issue in Corinth. How do we as Christians in a very idolatrous society where the norms of social context, the norms of getting along uh, are done in relation to these idol temples. When there's a big civic celebration, the idol temples are involved. When, when one of my friends down the street who is not a Christian has a birthday celebration or their anniversary dinner, and they invite us to it, that it's going to be in the dining room at one of these temples with the meat that has been sacrificed honoring these idols before it is, it is served to us. And in that, in that dining room there at the temple, that's all part of the package. We are participating together in it. And how does that relate to the temple of God? The temple of God and idols was an issue that led to the exile of Israel or the, the, um, the southern tribe, well, first the northern tribe, later the southern tribe, into captivity because they pursued idols. Even as they sort of kept the temple going, to the extent that the idols sooner or later made their way even into the temple itself and God could stand it, could stand it no longer. So these mingling together, and yet the terms that are used, and here it's, it's interesting, you wouldn't notice this on the surface, but, but in those, those words that are used, the partnership, fellowship, accord or harmony, portion, agreement, all of them but one are used by Paul only here. Now, fellowship, koinonia, is the word. Well, we named our cafe after that one. That's a word that Paul uses pretty commonly. But the others are unusual words. Even as they sound like very common, normal, everyday words. I think they were. I think they were the kind of rationale words, getting along. Finding common ground together. That was One of the rallying cries within an element within the Corinthian church that caused them to find the ways that they could get along and have harmony, find things they shared together, exercising tolerance, but a kind of tolerance that affirms the other. It's kind of like you see the coexist bumper sticker. It's a nice way of saying, can't we all just get along? It's, it's coexist, spelled out with all of these various religious or faith symbols. The first one, the C, being a crescent moon representing Islam, and the last letter, a T, representing the cross of Christianity. Can't we all just get along? Well, uh, Christianity and Islam don't mingle so well in a place like Saudi Arabia, do they? It's, it's a nice statement. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it feels good, but the cross of Christ and Islam or the various other things that are depicted in the coexist, they don't agree together. And Jesus put it this way. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He did draw a line. There is a distinction. Now I think the suge- Paul using these words, these let's all get along word, let's participate together, let's be together as much as we can on whatever terms that we can, I think what is happening is that is a rationale that has caused the church in Corinth to excuse themselves for a whole lot of participation that went on, went far beyond loving your neighbor to being with your neighbor, to being like your neighbor, to joining your neighbor in the things that he did, to showing up at the idol's temple, to, to functioning within a, a different means. For instance, I opened my wallet, and I found a dollar. I was so happy, a dollar. No, I looked at the dollar, and the dollar said... In very small letters, in God we trust. Really? Well. In much bigger letters, it says US dollar. Okay? For most people, the in God we trust is a historical hanger-on, although it's actually not that old. It was put on the money something around the 1950s, I I think some of you could describe that better than I. We left the gold standard and said we're going to trust God instead. But um, it was cute while it lasted. But... I think there's an interesting point there that pull out a dollar now and again, it might be another way to spark a conversation. Why does it say in God we trust on our money? Is that because we so easily trust in money instead of in God? When we run out of money, that's when we, even as Christians, will begin to pray, for instance, okay? Which do we trust in first? First we can rel- uh, another example seeing a thing seeing a problem seeing an issue and what are we going to do about it well even our country society uh, things are going bad and so we're going to we're going to we're going to get involved we're going to get motivated we're going to take action we are going to advance biblical morality within our society but you know what biblical morality does not make christianity no mass of people was was made Christian by being pressed to behave better. Actually, we need to have the light of the gospel shown on who we really are and what's really in our hearts and show a need of forgiveness. Rather than using political muscle and power to pursue an agenda, Even if we could get people to be better behaved so that they would think better of themselves and perhaps have less need for Jesus than they even had before. Sometimes I will get riled about something. At times you will need to forgive me because I also may be caught up in a thing and I may pursue it through means that would be Social power or authority or something else. And yet, when I do that, I fail. My cause falls apart because it is not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. I think one of the things that's going on here, one of the undercurrents that you you get all kinds of feel for as you go through 2 Corinthians is a a social power and standing that was part of what what has developed this tension. A reliance on recognition from within the social circles and the culture that have a certain element and leaders within the church relying on that instead of embracing Christ. Let me give you another for instance. We visited my son in Boston last week. He's uh, pursuing, he got out of the Marines. He had an um, undergrad degree in political science, so he suggested to his brother that he should get a college degree that he could actually get a job with. <laughs> Apparently an undergrad in political science is not that. And uh, so in getting out of the Marines, he, 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 they, they, they had been saving their pennies and they made the decision he wanted to get into business consulting and, and take what he'd done in the military in tactics and strategy consulting within the military and use that kind of thing, do that, but in the business world. So to learn something about that, he thought the best way to start in that would be to go to a really well-known business school. So my son is, is working on an MBA from Harvard Business School. Ooh, yeah, see, listen to you. Listen to yourselves. Ooh. Well, while we were there, I bought a shirt. I bought a shirt. It's got the little Harvard emblem right here. I was going to wear it this morning, but I didn't. It's got the little Harvard emblem here, right? And underneath it, it's not really big. It doesn't like say Harvard, boom, right across it. I didn't want to get showy. Besides, that just looks like you bought it at Walmart. I, 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 I got one. that's just kind of subtle, you know, a little Harvard business school. And I could wear it. And people would see me. And they would say, ooh, did you go to Harvard Business School? Oh, well, no, and I didn't really. Or maybe i just let them think that. But the ones that don't ask anyway. But no, I didn't. But my son is there. You know how parents do that, right? We get all this vicarious... um, Uh, success to ourselves based upon what our children do. So get out there, be successful, accomplish stuff, because I want to feel good, right? (laughs) Pile up a little more pressure on our kids, right? And so we get this boost out of, I didn't go to Harvard, but I got a son there. I got a son who's going to be a Harvard MBA, so obviously he must have got those brains from somewhere, right? And you should think, those are the kinds of things, those are the kind of things that we rely on That we defer to rather than the opinions, the writings, the principles of a rejected Galilean rabbi who was obviously executed as a common criminal. We easily esteem value to issues and weigh and decide and follow things based on the norms and the values of the culture in which we find ourselves because this is the air that we grew up breathing. These are the currents that we find ourselves carried along in and we will have to intentionally critique it constantly if we're going to rise above it and possibly go in different directions. That is what I think Paul is getting at here. Paul is not telling you, run from your neighbor when he talks about, in fact, these these sections, what is he saying there with don't be unequally yoked? Then he brings in He proves it with some Old Testament quotes, or he supports it with some Old Testament quotes. And what we do is we read these Old Testament quotes, we pull out of them certain lines like, Go out from among them and be ye separate, don't touch the unclean thing. And you look for somebody misbehaving around you, say, That must be them. Okay, not gonna go anywhere near those people because, like, they need Jesus or something. Okay? That's not what Paul's saying here. When, when the Old Testament is quoted in your, in, the, in your New Testament, go back and read it there. Let me give you an example. We will read just one of them because I'm going I'm to take more time than I had planned. But let me read this, just this one. The first quote comes out of Leviticus chapter one, or, sorry, Leviticus 26, verse one to thirteen. I won't read all thirteen verses. I'll read the first couple and then I'll read the last couple. But you'll get, there's a whole string of blessings in the midst. So I'm going to cheat you out of some blessings this morning. You'll have to go back and look yourself. It says, you shall not make idols for yourselves or erect an image or a pillar. You shall not set up a, a, a figure of stone in your land to bow down to it. For I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary, my temple. I am the Lord. Sounds like what? What commonality, what part together does does the, does the temple of God have with idols doesn 't it? If you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you rains in their seasons, and the land will increase its, 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 it will yield its increase, then it goes on, one blessing: the, your enemies will run before you, and everything going to be wonderful Your, your, your crops are going to are going to grow your your flocks are going to multiply. And verse 12, and I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. And I have broken the bars of your yoke and made you walk erect. What Paul is reminding them there is Israel was called out of idolatry into a freedom of new life where they could worship God and walk with them and he would be their God and they would be his people. And that's what he quotes right there in verse 16. And then he adds on to that in verse 17 a quote out of Isaiah. Well, That's interesting, jumping from Leviticus over to Isaiah. And the quote in Isaiah from Isaiah 52 is words of prophecy concerning when Israel is going to return from Babylon. Return from the exile to that they go into because of their idolatry, because they have followed the ways of the world, because they have trusted and relied on the things that everybody else relied on other than God. And by the way, the idol of Baal was predominantly a prosperity and material success idol in an agricultural culture and they're relying on the same things that all the rest of the world and we're, and we're going to do it the way the world does it we're going to get there the way the world gets there we're going to succeed and prosper on the same terms that the world succeeds and prospers and they ended up in exile you want babylon go live in babylon then and after seven years 70 years they were sick of it and god brought them Not only that, when God brought them back, you know what else? King Cyrus, the Persian king that overtook Babylon then said, Hey, you Israelites, you go home. You you rebuild your temple again because I want you there in your temples, the true and living God, to pray for me. So Cyrus sends them home. You know what he sent them home with? He put in their hands to carry back to Jerusalem the articles from the temple that the Babylonians had carried away 70 years earlier. They're coming out, back out of Babylon. God has delivered them. God has restored them, just as he said he would, back out of Babylon, which they were there because of their wandering away into the world's idolatry and trusting in the dollar instead of in God. You will go out from among, from among them, and you will be separate from them, says the Lord. You're not going to live there anymore. You're going to come back home. Touch no unclean thing, and I, I will welcome you. And then I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. Now, this is a tricky one. Where does that old testament? It's an old testament allusion rather than an exact quote. It seems to be alluding to First Chronicles when Nathan the prophet is talking to Daniel or, or David, and he tells David, one of your sons, he's gonna be a son to me, and I'm gonna be a father to you, to him, and he is gonna reign on your throne forever. And Paul expands the quote. He adds sons and daughters. Because we're not just talking about David's son. David's son, who that was fulfilled, is Christ. And we together, there's no difference between male and female in the sense that we are together, heirs of God and joint heirs of Jesus Christ. So Paul takes that and he says, church, this in Christ, because of what Jesus has done, this is you. You have been exalted in Christ. You have been raised up in him. You are God's sons and daughters. So, Egypt, Babylon. Oh, wait. Where else is that quoted? It's talking about future. Where else is it quoted? This, this sons and daughters thing. It's in the book of Revelation, in chapter 21. In the New Jerusalem. And now the new heaven, the new earth, and new Jerusalem, and God is dwelling in the midst of his people. And this again is stated. I will be the father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord. That is our future. That is our eternity. That is our calling. That is our identity in Christ. So, over those three quotations, you could write in your mind, if you don't want to write in your Bible, or you could write in your Bible, if you've got a um, phone Bible, I'm not sure what you're going to do. You could write over them, Egypt. Egypt redeemed, Babylon, restored from my own wandering, New Jerusalem, exaltation, exaltation, destiny. That is our future. That is who we are. That is our identity. And God has done it all. And so Paul says, since then, we have these promises. What are we doing What are we doing, distracted and drawn away? What are we doing, relying on the normal ways that normal people live? When these are our promises. This, you know that ad? I just thought of this. What's in your wallet? I told you I have a dollar. What's in your wallet? What's in your pocket? I'll tell you what can be in your pocket. In Christ, what's in your pocket? What you possessed, what is yours, is that you have been redeemed. You have been restored and forgiven. And that will happen again and again. And you have been exalted as an heir of God, a joint heir with Jesus Christ, sons and daughters of the Almighty. In him we trust. So what are we going to do with that? Where are we going to go with that? We are going to then strive to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. We talk about separation and don't be unequally yoked, and what does that mean? I had a couple of, of potentials we could throw out there. Does that refer to marriage, that a Christian should not be married to a, to a, to a non-Christian? Well, I think that's true, but I don't think that is the primary. I think the primary is don't be yoked together to the old world. Be yoked together with your, in your new identity in Christ. Don't be trusting the things the world trusts in. Rather be trusting. Don't build your life on the former sand, build your life on the solid rock of Jesus. That's what's being talked about in that unequally yoked, but we tease that out little There's certainly then, if, if I'm going to pursue in life with people that are like-minded, that I have the closest fellowship, that I have the closest partnering with, that I have harmony with, that we are going to be pursuing the same things, and certainly, when you're choosing who you're going to be married to, you're going to choose somebody that's going to share that. please. Choose somebody that shares your passion, who will compliment you and who will, who will encourage you on in love and good deeds and walking by faith. So, certainly that would. Have, but then again, if you were married and then one of you comes to faith in Christ, you can't say, well, gee, I'm not supposed to be an equally yoked. I guess I should, I should leave that spouse and go get a new one. No, Paul says, no, no, stay. Who knows how God might use you with them? If they leave, that's, you know, they say, I didn't ever want to be married to one of these Christians. What happened here? Well, they might leave. That you cannot control, but you know you stay, he says. He, "He's not is, is he talking about, well, well, who do I hang around with? I need to stay away from and not be entangled with anybody who's, who's, who's an unbeliever. I don't want to be yoked together with people on a social basis. Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, When I told you not to associate with, with, with immoral people, he said, I did not mean unbelievers. Because if that's what I was telling you, you'd have to go out of the world. Or at least climb a rock and build a monastery. And you might as well be out of the world. He said, that's not what I was telling you. I was telling you those who, who claim to be Christians and identify themselves with you, but are living and behaving as if they are not. Those are the ones that you need to withdraw from because that withdrawal, that separation that you create from them will will either wake them up or protect you from their influence. Does it mean that I can't work for a non-Christian employer? Well, Paul seems to tell slaves how to respond to their masters and even if their master is an unbeliever, to serve them as unto the Lord. So I don't think that's, that's what it's getting at. It may have something to inform us about partnership because, again, if you're going to be in a business partnership with somebody... You want to be pulling the same direction, and you want to be going about it with the same heart. It makes a lot of sense. You find yourself in a partnership, and then one of, you, one of the two partners gets saved in a, in a business situation. Does that mean now you have to withdraw? Well, maybe not. Who knows how God might use you there also. So those ways that we might line this passage out in terms of isolating ourselves from others are probably not the primary thrust of it. He actually says, back in chapter 7, verse 1, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit. What are the things that I can do? What are the things that I might trust in? What are the things that I will pursue that I believe will bring me some satisfaction, fulfillment, or gain that actually are, first of all, perhaps a wrong use of my body, and secondly, are going to defile my soul, my spirit, my heart. Now, in the Corinthian context, one of the things that's got to rise up first in Paul's thinking is the idol's temple that was also associated with what they called sacred prostitutes. I'm not going to go into that, but basically just to say this. There was rampant immorality that was part of the goings-on of the temples. I'll leave it at that. And certainly, as he describes this, body and soul, that's in his mind, but it's bigger than just that. Martin Luther, in the Reformation, confronted a list of indulgences. The whole lie of indulgences, rather, which would defile one's soul because if I believe I can pay off a sin debt with money that I have and that will satisfy God against me, then first of all I'm defiling my soul against God's grace by paying my own way. And then that leads to defiling my body by participating in sin that I believe I now have purchased an indulgence to permit me to now participate in. So I defile my body in sin, but I've defiled my soul because I have trusted in myself and my money instead of God's grace. We are in a very sexual society, not unlike Corinth, a society which offers us fulfillment. You'll feel better, pleasure, entices in all kinds of ways, attitudes, behaviors, images, entertainment that also affects our hearts. I remember a few years ago, a speaker at Men's Roundup, I won't give his name because this is his story to tell, not mine, but he described how he got ensnared along the way in pornography. He had been a pastor at the time, and he, it, it ruined his ministry. He, he had to withdraw from, from that ministry, of course. But, but not more than that, but as this hooked him, as this ensnared him, he said, it changed my heart. Don't think, he told us, men, don't think you can keep looking at that stuff and look at others the same way. He said, I could not keep looking at that stuff and look at my wife the same way. It didn't just affect him in the moment. It affected his heart. It affected his soul. And so it does with us as well. That's just one more example of it. It might be our political involvement. It might be getting so caught up in what's going on in the news of the world and fretting about that. It it can be any number of things that I'm distracted by and worried by and trying to fix myself. God says to us, my dear child, I like that line, I speak as if to children, if I could Take that out a little bit and lay it out before us again. God says, I speak freely to you. My heart is open. My heart is wide open to you. For redemption out of Egypt, for restoration out of futility, all the way into that new identity and glorious future that he has set up for us. Oh, he says, my children, won't you pursue that? You are only restricted in your own affections. I said at the start of this message that authentic discipleship is not so much a matter of being distant as a matter of being different. Being different ourselves in the midst of the world. Maybe I could reword that one more step. Maybe it's more of a matter of devotion than distance that we direct our our attention and our affections first of all back to the one who loved me, gave himself for me, and follow him. Treasure him and whatever he treasures and then enjoy him and show him in the midst of a world that needs him desperately. Would you pray with me? Father, any one of us here could be thinking now of something that they would choose to be different in. Some way, something they would be less trusting in. Something in terms of you that they would be more devoted to. Lord, I trust this morning your spirit to speak to us about the particular thing. But Father, would you, as you've done, as you did out of Egypt, as you did back from Babylon, Lord, draw our hearts toward New Jerusalem, not even this one. Draw our hearts toward eternity more than this present world, that we would hold whatever's in our hands here loosely, and that we would use it for you in whatever way you direct. We pray that, Father. Lord, for those that are thinking, this is the thing for me. This is something that is in my way. This is something that has captured my affection. Father, right now we ask for your grace, your intervention, your spirit, to give them your strength and courage to turn to you and pursue you instead. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen.